Hey everyone, I'm Jim Muskie, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In May 1865, Union forces captured Confederate President Jefferson Davis in Irwinville, Georgia, as the Civil War neared its end. Davis had led the Confederate States of America since 1861. He was apprehended along with his wife, Verena, while attempting to flee south in the weeks after Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia. Davis was taken to Fortress Monroe in Virginia, clapped in irons, and given a Bible to read as he awaited his fate. He had waged war against the United States as the commander-in-chief of a rebel force, and the Constitution was clear. This was treason, and treason could be punished by death. On the surface, you might think that the federal prosecution of Davis for treason would have been, in modern parlance, a slam dunk. In fact, Davis's conviction was far from certain. On today's episode, Dr. Cynthia Nicoletti joins me to discuss her recent book, Secession on Trial, The Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. Nicoletti is a professor of history and the class of 1966 research professor of law at the University of Virginia School of Law. As you'll hear, Nicoletti's book isn't about whether or not secession was legal or illegal. That question was decided on the battlefield and in a later Supreme Court decision. Rather, it's about the fundamental questions that Davis's prosecution raised about the rule of law and democracy as the United States tried to rebuild itself following four years of civil war. Ensuring that Davis received a fair trial, even if the prosecution lost, would have been a hallmark of the rule of law. But if the prosecution lost, would that have validated secession and denied the Union's permanence? As it turns out, both the prosecution and the defense maneuvered to avoid putting these larger questions before a jury. The trial never happened, and Nicoletti helps us to understand why. Now, before we get started, we just want to say hello and welcome to all our new listeners. We're delighted to have you join us, and thank you very much for your support. And with that, let's put Secession and Jefferson Davis on trial with Cynthia Nicoletti. And action. Hi, Jim. How are you? Well, I'm all right, Cynthia. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Um, it's a weird new world that we're all in now. It's um, it is an interesting time right now. So you have moved to online teaching there at uh, UVA Law School. Is that correct? Yes, online teaching. So um, I record lectures for my big class, and I do um, Zoom with them once a week. And then um, in my other class, I I hold by Zoom once a week, and it's it's sad, you know. Um, that I I still get to interact with my students, so that's good. But um. But I miss their little faces. Well, when you're meeting with them, are you meeting with them one-on-one, or are you just having a massive Zoom office hours with uh, your students? So it would be massive if everybody were caught up, but um, yesterday it was four students in my office hours. Um, and so I'm hopeful that uh, that next time I will be overwhelmed. Well, I've got my fingers crossed for you, but... I, Am I writing that you're saying essentially that um, no one's doing the reading? Um, I don't. So actually in my history class, I think people very much are doing the reading. In my property class, I think um, people are catching up. But I think there was so much dislocation for about a week that they're, they're still catching up and aren't entirely caught up. Well, I think that's probably certainly understandable. I think we're all trying to catch up at this point, uh, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, I can I can be understandable, understanding. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, how quickly did you all move to online teaching? 
we got the notice that we were going to online teaching over spring break. So I think it was Wednesday of spring break, and then they delayed classes starting. They were supposed to start on Monday the following week, and so we started on Thursday instead. So they gave us sort of three days to transition plus the rest of spring break. But um, unfortunately, I didn't actually have any room in my schedule to have missed classes, so I had to reschedule some um, makeups and stuff. So, um, I have to say, and my students have been really great. Um, I don't know, after I taught my first Zoom class with my small, um, seminar on the Civil War, um, I, I almost cried at the end of it yeah. because they were all so great and so fantastic and, you know, just so engaged. And this really would have been an opportunity for them not to engage. And I don't, I don't mean opportunity. I mean, it would have totally made sense, but they really, I mean, I think for them, I think in some sense, this is, this is a bit of a survival strategy mm -hmm. of just, you know, focusing on, um, what you, what you can. No, I think that's a good point. You know, it, is you, if you're able to keep your mind focused on something that at least makes this difficult situation, it, you know, seemingly manageable, or at least it gives you something to think about besides, the current predicament. Yeah. I mean, I say that with the understanding that there are some people who just can't, right. People are in very mm -hmm. different circumstances, right. So we moved to pass fail grading um, in part because of this, because there's such a differential that there are some students who really, I mean, this obviously affects everybody's life, but um, some people it's, um, you know, relatively minor in their lives. Um, but for other people, it's just total dislocation. So I, you know, I have to be mindful of the fact um, that it really affects people very differently. Well, it's a good example, too, of how pervasive uh, the whole crisis is because you're teaching at a professional law school where the students are older, you know, in their, in their uh, mid to late 20s, sometimes older, working towards a professional degree. Uh, but you're going through the same things and they're going through the same things as elementary students are, as college students are yeah. and as uh, uh, other people, other working people are at this moment? Yeah, some of my students are, I would say that law school maybe tends a little bit younger than graduate school in history. Um, but you're right. Um, I think uh, the, the, I don't know if it's an overwhelming majority, but it's certainly a majority of students, I think, are at least one or two years out of college. Um, so um, I think, I think everybody is over 21 as far as I know. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really different, right? There are some people who really are right out of college and then there are people who have families. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's very different, um, for students. Uh, I have one student who, um, has a spouse who, um, works at the hospital. So, um, I think this is, uh, quite stressful for that family. Oh, sure. That's totally understandable. I mean, that is, um, uh, that really does uh, bring it close to home, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. I mean, I've um, I've been practicing self care, taking myself on walks, and reading, and doing the best I can. You know. Well, it sounds like no no different than the uh, I think the rest of us at this point. Well, I mean, one of the things we wanted to talk about is another difficult time in the history of the United States, which is the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, in part because you wrote a book about that. that. I love that transition, Jim. 
brilliant. Loved it. Thank you. <laughs> that was that was a great pivot on my part. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, we're going to be talking about the the big question that many Americans were asking themselves and of their government in the late 1860s, whether or not Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, could be put on trial for treason and what that ultimately said about the question or the legality of secession. So can you tell us the title of your book? Sure. It's Secession on Trial, the Treason Prosecution of Jefferson Davis. So what are the origins of this project? Because, you know, at face value, it seems like uh, a book about the treason prosecution of Jefferson Davis and the legality of secession might be a settled issue. Um, you know, many Americans would have argued uh, that secession was illegal, that it was a violation of the Constitution, and that Jefferson Davis should have died a traitor's death. Uh, but that's not the way that that history played out. And so what got you interested in this project? Great. It's a, it's a great question, Jim. I mean, I think in particular because um, you could look at this um, and you could say, look, this is a non-episode, right? So one, for the reasons that you mentioned, this seems totally settled. Why, um, you know, why belabor the point? But also, um, it's a book about a trial that doesn't happen. Um, and so it doesn't have really, uh, you know, a big payoff with, I don't know, Al Pacino at the end, railing, um, that kind of thing. But um, I... It was an episode I really just didn't know much about when I embarked on this. So this was um, this came out of my dissertation, dissertation, my dissertation for my PhD. And so when I embarked on the project, I really didn't know anything about it. Um, what sparked my interest was uh, I well, I, I could tell you that the book is born of panic. That's maybe not the best way to pick a dissertation topic, but it worked for me. Um, <laughs> I had a different topic and my advisor didn't like it. What was and the original so topic? It was about slavery in the Confederacy. And I was interested in whether or not the legal institution of slavery was crumbling from within um, or whether it was being strengthened as it's being, um, you know, sort of uh, it's, it's, crumbling from without, right? So mm -hmm. to what extent is the Confederacy um, altering rules because, you know, um, emancipation is uh, becoming the law on the Union side? That's what I was interested in. I see. But, yeah, so um, I, my advisor said, nope, that's not for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I was, I remember st I was studying for my comprehensive exam then, and he sent me to the library um, to look at um, Charles Fairman's book on, called Reconstruction and Reunion. It's the history of the Supreme Court. It's, I think, about 2,000 pages long. And I think I actually might be underestimating it. It might be longer than 2,000 pages. And I remember looking at this book thinking, oh, no, I have to find a topic. Um, and I think I had to present on something in about a week in my class. And so I remember opening up Charles Fairman's book on the Supreme Court and Reconstruction, and um, he had one chapter on Texas versus White, which is the Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court declares secession unconstitutional in 1869. And then there was a little thing in the book, not much, but a few pages, I think, on Jefferson Davis's 
treason prosecution. Um, and I just didn't really know anything about that. Although I had actually worked on Davis before for my undergraduate thesis a million years before that. So I knew a little bit about Davis, but I didn't know anything about his treason prosecution. And I'd always been interested in secession. I was, I was a weird kid. I was interested in this question. <laughs> um, I think even going back to high school and college, I've always been interested in federalism. And so um, I remember looking at this book and thinking about Texas versus White and Davis's trial. And so um, the Fairman book didn't really talk about whether Davis's trial raised this question of secession's legality. And so I thought maybe it did. Um, and if it did, I'm wondering why it is that we get um, a declaration that secession is unconstitutional in Texas versus White, but it doesn't come in Davis's case. So I started with the idea that maybe the two cases were paired together. Mm-hmm. And the Texas v. White, that was 1869, is that right? Yes. So it's 1869. And then, um, so I, I guess I should tell you that before I embarked on, you know, years and years of research on this, you know, I did a little bit of checking. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know whether graduate students listen to this podcast, Jim, although they should, right? Well, damn um, straight. But Absolutely. So if they're looking for tips about how to do research, right? I mean, the first thing I really did was to try to figure out whether or not my hunch, which was that maybe the two cases involved the same issue, was to figure out if that were true, right? If that's not true, I think I have no project. Um, You don't want to start, you know, doing four years of research and decide, oh, no, there's nothing there. Um, So um, in terms of this case, there were a lot of really interesting parallels. Um, one of them being that um, the the judge who worked on um, who was supposed to oversee Davis's case um, in uh, the Fourth Circuit in Virginia is Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase, and he's also um, he was the Chief Justice of the United States, and he wrote the opinion in Texas versus White. So Davis's case is eventually dropped in early 1869, um, and Texas versus White comes out a few months later, or the opinion comes down a few months later. So, um, so I definitely started with the idea that, you know, that the two were linked. I also, um, did some cooking around, um, at Davis's case to see whether or not they talked about the session issue and whether his lawyers raised it. And the answer was yes. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, can you build on that to talk about the challenge of writing a book about the legality or the illegality of secession? Um, yeah, so I so I, I really started with the idea of, um, you know, I was interested in this particular case and this particular time period. Um, and the reason I was interested in it was, um, this goes back to what you said at the beginning, right, which was, well, this is a nothing. Everybody assumes, right, that what, um, what, causes secession to be illegal is the outcome of the civil war, right? Um, even, you know, um, even my mom had heard that one before, right? Um, <laughs> that, that of course, you know, what settles this question, I think there are some, you know, there's some great sort of lines if you start reading about this where historians have said stuff like, oh, what settled this was the great case of Grant versus Lee or something like that. Um, and so I think um, I was working with the assumption, right, or at least I was writing against the assumption that um, all of this was just immediately settled after the war. And one of the big revelations to me in 
um, in doing this research is that it's not so settled, or at least some people think it's settled and some people think it's not settled after the war and that the period, um, you know, until Davis's case is heard, or sorry, not heard, but dropped, and the Supreme Court rules in Texas versus White, things are quite volatile in terms of, you know, sort of settling the legal question. And, you know, I was interested in how it is that, you know, how do we sort of think about the interaction between, you know, um, real world events like the war mm-hmm. and the outcome of the, world, the war. I think of that as sort of the ultimate real world event and, you know, the way that courts talk about, um, you know, legal questions, like what's the interaction between those two things. I think I, I got away from your question a little bit. No, but, I, I think um, you're, I think you're right because I, I, I think what you were getting at and when you, especially when you raise the, the great trial of Grant versus Lee, what, so what you're really talking about there is this tension between uh, the Civil War and the idea of secession as, uh, as decided on the battlefield versus in philosophical rule of law. And there's a tension between those two that people are trying to negotiate. Is that, is that the best way to put it? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, I wanted to take, I guess I really wanted to take this, this issue seriously. So, I mean, not really, I mean, it's, it's, um, I, I will confess this, that the book is not really about the legality of secession, mm-hmm. right? Sort of as an abstract ma- man- matter. Um, I mean, um, for those of you who are interested in buying the book for that reason, there's still some of that. Um, but yeah, there's, I still do talk about the question in the abstract and I lay out the arguments on both sides um, of that issue in the abstract. But what I was really interested in is the, the question of how does, um, how do we settle legal questions in our society and how do we think about the tension between um, the battlefield and um, the courtroom? And maybe this, uh, you know, um, circles back to your earlier question about writing a book on secession. It's such a volatile topic, right? That, um, you know, I think one thing I really wanted to do in this book was to take these issues seriously, um, that I didn't, that I, I feel like there are certainly people on, you know, who are interested in secession who, um, are so convinced that it's either clearly right or clearly wrong. Um, that I think there are sort of um, there might be a tendency to to really think deeply about how um, how our society has settled the legal question um, about secession without sort of devolving into you know um, I guess I would call it the politics of um, lost cause or civil war interpretation today. Sure. So you. You're you're trying to take these characters on their own terms, as opposed to coming up with the answer to the ultimate question of whether secession was illegal or or legal. You're you're much more interested in how people are trying to work that very problem in this particular moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so. Yeah, exactly right. I would say that um, the legal question to me um, is not one in the abstract, right? possessions, legality or illegality. Um, it's certainly, um, it's not in the text of the constitution. Everybody agrees on that, but the arguments on both sides of the issue, um, I find, um, not, uh, 
I, I don't find I don't find that the question really admits of a clear answer mm-hmm. um, one way or the other. And so um, I'm less interested in sort of rehashing uh, the you know the particulars of the argument as I am thinking about how did they work through that question, yeah. right? And how do they think about not just the question in the abstract, um, there's actually very little of the question in the abstract in the book, um, because um, they are, um, when I say they, I mean um, my lawyers and American society in the aftermath um, of the Civil War, they are they are arguing both sort of high constitutional principles, um, and then they are also talking about, you know, all of the nitty gritty of actual law practice and how it is that you would get this question before a court. And then they are thinking about the politics of all this and how is it that, I mean, could it, is it possible for, um, for a court to give um, a different answer from the battlefield in the aftermath Mm -hmm. of the war? What would that suggest about our society? Right. I mean, if this goes to court, um, and you got um, a ruling against, um, or, or against, or sorry, in favor of Davis, and um, and against the idea of the union's permanent. Um, well, what does that suggest about our society? Does it mean that that decision would just be ignored? Um, does it mean that we would be um, dedicated to the rule of law over? Um, you know, might makes right. Um, there were all these sort of very big questions that, I mean, one of the things that I really, um, that I really enjoyed about this project, and I can say that I enjoyed it because I'm far enough away from the actual day-to-day of doing it, <laughs> which was hard. <laughs> um, but one of the things I really enjoyed about it was um, I was interested in, you know, big questions about how we think about law in our society Um and I found uh, this trial gave me a way, a window onto much bigger questions. And so, you know, I could do sort of meticulous work on what were the lawyers thinking, and then it, but it allowed me to really open up um, big questions and say um, things that I thought were, you know, were quite interesting about um, a big issue. Well, sure. I mean, a lot of what you're getting at in the book, I think, is about the very nature of American democracy itself after it suffered this gigantic cataclysm and it's trying to put itself back together. Well, I appreciate that, Jim. That's a, um, I, I love that. So um, I, I was, I mean, I, I cried, you know, I think um, this was, this was something that really has um, always interested me. And so um, I guess I would say also, so I, I, in terms of the, my little corner of the scholarly world, um, so I think of myself as the legal historian of the Civil War era, um, there aren't that many people in my corner of the scholarly world. And I'm always, um, I'm, I've always thought that if one is a legal historian, the Civil War is the most fascinating thing to study. Um, I'm, I don't, I'm not alone in this, but I, I would I would say that um, I, I'm always surprised that there aren't more people interested in this because um, for me, the Civil War raises really important, interesting questions about um, the rule of law in the United States, um, you know, the biggest questions in our society about federalism and the, the, the integrity of the nation and um, race and slavery. So, um, and this 
um, thinking about this in terms of um, legal history, right? Um, if I'm interested, I'm, I'm interested in questions about whether um, how deeply dedicated our society is to the rule of law, and what better way to study that than actually look at where it's really under a lot of stress, which is for me what the war um, allows you to think about. Well, hopefully by the time we're done today, we'll have a lot more people interested in the legal history of the Civil War, because I think um, what your book does is raises some of those fundamental questions. So, you know, continuing on, let's sort of get the lay of the land here as we build up towards a potential trial for Jefferson Davis, for treason uh, in the aftermath of the war. What, what is the federal government's attitude toward senior Confederate leadership uh, in the aftermath of the war? What, what do they, what is the Johnson administration you know, Andrew Johnson, who becomes president after Lincoln's assassination. What what are they intent on doing with people like Davis, with people like Lee? Um, do they are they out to arrest them? Are they out to um, uh, what what do they what do they hope to do with these people? It's a great question. So um, it, it, it depends on who we're talking about. Um, so I think the government pretty early on makes a distinction between um, political leaders and military ones. Um, but right after the war, um, the war ends, or uh, well, there's still a legal question about when the war ends. So I'll leave that to to another podcast. But, um, has, but after has the war ever sorry, ended? I mean, this is that is deep, Jim. <laughs> um, I hope not, because you know I, I get a whole career on studying it. Um, but, but uh, I digress. Um, but what I would what I would say is that after um, after uh, Lee's army um, surrenders, um, there is uh, a whole issue of you know um, who is the federal government going to arrest and on what theory. So I would say actually with Davis himself. Um, the government, um, what happens is that he's in the Confederate capital of Richmond and he flees south when he hears that the Union Army is about to take Richmond. Um, and uh, the government sends troops after him. And there are several different theories under which they are looking to arrest Davis. One is um, immediately what happens is that right after Lincoln's assassination, um, there's this idea that Confederate leaders were involved in Lincoln's assassination. And so that's actually why the troops are following Davis initially. So there are sort of three things that the government is interested in prosecuting him for or thinking about is one is Lincoln's assassination. Two is war crimes um, for the treatment of union prisoners at Andersonville prison. And then thirdly, um, treason charges. And then um, the, the just the one thing I would mention that um, in terms of the treason charges um, against Confederates. So um, Johnson went after, um, I think, all of the members of Davis's cabinet um, and attempted to arrest them. Some of them flee the country and so get away before um, they can be arrested. But um, what's interesting is that military leadership isn't really arrested. And so um, Lee, in particular, um, is somebody that uh, people in the government are interested in, you know, arresting him um, and trying him for treason. So he's sort of under that threat for a while. But um, what happens is that General Grant steps in and says, um, the terms of, of the parole that I issued Lee on the battlefield says that he's allowed to go home just like the rest of his troops. And 
the Johnson administration interprets that as um, this parole as being, um, you know, a general uh, release from being tried for treason. And so what happens is that they, they go after the um, civil officers rather than military. Oh, I see. What is the general public's attitude towards Davis? Um, I would imagine he has more favorable views in the uh, former Confederate states, but uh, is are the is the northern public conflicted? Or I should say the Union public conflicted? Yeah, so actually, I mean, I would say both the Union public and the Confederate public. So Davis is not that popular um, when he is Confederate president. Um, I think I'm actually vastly understating that. Davis is not popular at all <laughs> by the time that the war ends. And, and so, what are the reasons for that? Yeah, it's because, um, well, it's, it's A, because they lose, right? Um, that doesn't, doesn't make you look great as a president. But uh, I would say B, also, it's, it's that there's there's great privation in the Confederacy. So, you know, the the Confederacy is, is desperately poor. Um, you know, resources are totally strained. Um, and so um, a lot of the public blames that um, on Davis. So he looks very unpopular. Um, I will, uh, so I'll just mention, um, I looked at the, I think it was the diary of um, one of uh, um, somebody who was, well, not in the cabinet, but he was one of the Confederate officers who's arrested, um, John Campbell, who was previously on the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, he says in his diary from prison, um, right after the war, where he's bitter that Davis gets arrested and um, he says, oh, well, this is helping Davis to look good because now he's a martyr for the Confederacy. And if only the Union government knew how much everybody hated him, they would let him go. <laughs> so um, I, I would say that Davis Davis actually views his imprisonment and potential trial. Um, he views himself as sort of a stand-in for the Confederacy and potentially a martyr for the Confederacy. Um and so I think actually his trial and imprisonment, which is actually quite harsh at the beginning, at least, he's in prison for two years, which is longer than any other Confederate um, by about a year. And um, initially the terms of his imprisonment are quite harsh and he's not in good health. And, and so um, that actually helps him to sort of rehabilitate his image um, with a former Confederate. On the Union side, um, there are people who are very, very angry who think that um, that Davis absolutely should be put on trial for treason. So, um, you know, I guess I would just to just to sort of put a fine point on what exactly um, they're arguing about. So, if in this case, right, is that so? The theory is that um, if uh, that, that Davis clearly commits treason um, under Article Three of the Constitution, which says that treason consists in levying war against the United States. It's very clear that Davis levied war against the United States. That's his job, in fact. Um, but the issue is that um, that they're thinking that his defense is going to raise the claim of um, his state's secession as a defense, right? So, in order to commit treason, um, you have to levy war against the United States, but you also have to be a U.S. citizen. And the claim is that when Davis's home state of Mississippi secedes in early 1861, um, that removes Davis's U.S. citizenship. So if you are not a U.S. citizen, you can't commit treason. So 
um, that was, uh, that was a little bit of a digression, but um, well, that, the idea. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that 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 makes sense, right? Because if if as you say, if he is a citizen, then he is capable of committing treason. But if he is outside the United States uh, as a citizen of an independent Mississippi or a Confederacy, then wouldn't the war fall under uh, the law of nations or something to that effect? Yeah. So actually, this is a big issue in his case. Um, so we have the argument that um, that secession is um, is is illegal, right? So Davis never, um, right? So he never successfully removed his citizen, or Mississippi never successfully removed his citizenship by seceding. Um, but then there are arguments that are really, um, I found these really interesting that they're also arguing about um, the status of the Confederacy under not just U.S. domestic constitutional law, which would say that um, secession is illegal, at least according to the U.S. government. Um, but then there are also, um, you know, a, a second set of arguments about what is the status of the Confederacy under international law. And this was a, a big issue because um, the Supreme Court decided this is the only really big constitutional case that the Supreme Court Years in the middle of the Civil War, um, before the war has ended, um, the prize cases, the Supreme Court decides that the Confederacy can be treated as um, a belligerent power, at least a quasi-separate nation for purposes of international law, which allows international law to be used against the Confederacy. And so um, there's a lot of argument um, in Davis's case about, well, if the U.S. has um, quasi-recognized Confederacy as a belligerent entity during the war, um, doesn't the, um, the president of the Confederacy in waging war against the United States, that would be legal under international law. Um, in the 19th century, war was legal under international law. And so there's a whole argument that says that, um, that the U.S. has got to treat Davis according to its decision in the prize cases and accord him, you know, um, the protection of um, the the recognition of the Confederacy as a belligerent power. And so there's um, all kinds of arguments going on in his case about which body of law applies. So there's a whole complex, multi-layered legal situation going on. It's to say nothing of the political situation that that most of these folks are dealing with at the time, but they are, they're looking at this problem from a constitutional level an international law level, um, uh, a philosophical level. Um, it, it is, that is a basket of, um, riches, but also I would imagine to them as well, uh, a basket of confusion at times. Yeah. So, so what's interesting is that, um, this sort of goes back to one of your earlier questions too, is that, um, initially, the Johnson administration is gung-ho, right, in the sense that they think, um, well, uh, this is great. We'll put Davis on trial. It'll be so easy to get a conviction against him, right? Um, what could be easier than convicting the Confederate president of levying war against the United States? That's his whole job. Um, so I think that initially they're very gung-ho, but I don't think they really thought this through um, because almost immediately they start really worrying, right? So yeah. um, a lot of this book looks at the lawyers here and it's about um, what the lawyers are doing. And um, so uh, at this time, this is before the, right before the creation of the Department of Justice. 
So the U.S. government routinely, the attorney general's office would hire um, outside private lawyers to work on this. And so they hire some outside lawyers um, who are really quite savvy. And um, one of them says, you know, we have got to get out of this. Right? So two of them are friends and they write to one another and, and they say, um, we need to put it on the record that we told the government early on that this case is a disaster and we could lose <laughs> so that when we do lose, we don't look that bad. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of a pretty abrupt turnaround in terms of when they start worrying about all of these problems. So they worry about um, the arguments about um, the Confederacy status under international law, but they're also fundamentally worried about jury nullification or even um, uh, you know um, a statement from the bench from one of the judges that that secession um, excuses treason. And then how bad do you look as a lawyer then if you can't convict the Confederate president of treason? Oh, yeah. I feel like like that's, you know, it's embarrassing when you go to the next bar meeting. Well, and depending on which bar you're talking about, certainly, you know, (laughs) the legal bar or the bar where you you look like you had an easy win and you completely blow it. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, so that's a a concern certainly on – the individual level for the lawyers working on this, but it's a huge concern for um, for the Johnson administration and the country as a whole. So, um, the, in the Johnson administration, you know, they discuss in the cabinet. Um, but there's also lots of commentary in the United States that says, you know, if we cannot establish um, that secession is illegal by putting the head of the Confederacy on trial for what he did in this terrible war. Um, and getting a conviction, then that, what does that say about us as a nation? I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that they suggest is that in order to be a real nation, to have, we have to have, and to have some basic integrity, we have to be able to punish treason, right? Um, if you can't do that, then I think they're sort of, that's another worry about the basic integrity of the United States. So the the government's worried about this, the federal government's worried about this, the, the, lawyers, the lawyers that they hire are worried about this issue as well. They're worried about losing and the, and the precedence it could set, uh, not only legally, but you know, the, the statement it would make about the Republic and the great democratic experiment. Who are the attorneys who are representing Davis and what are they worried about? Yeah. So, um, a great question. Um, this is a very attorney focused book. Um, and so, um, Davis has a whole, team of lawyers. Um, I have a list in the back of the book. I think it's something like 25 lawyers work on the case in some capacity. But his main lawyer is um, a New Yorker, which might be a surprise um, Hmm. that his main lawyer is not a Southerner. But his main lawyer is a New Yorker um, named Charles O'Connor, who was probably the most famous lawyer in the United States at the time, although nobody really knows his name now. But he was um, a very prominent lawyer, um, was definitely a Southern sympathizer. Um, he sort of coordinates many different lawyers who are working on his team um, to represent Davis. And so I think um, for O'Connor, he is um, very much sort of a contrarian. Um, and so he, I think, doesn't mind being a secession sympathizer in post-war New York where they're really flush with union victory and he is not afraid to sort of go against the tide. Um, but I don't know that he, um, 
I mean, he's a Southern sympathizer. He's not, I don't know that he's entirely convinced that secession is legal. Um, but what he's really concerned about here, I mean, the, the really, I think, central tension for him is um, he wants to save Davis's life. So um, treason is a crime that, um, you know, merits punishment by death, that's specified. And so um, Davis is um, in prison. He is, um, he has four small children um, who, um, and his property is stripped from him after the war. He doesn't really have much of a means, his family doesn't have much of a means of support. And, um, I think, you know, he's sort of interested in becoming a martyr after the war, but his lawyer is a lot more practical. So his lawyer is really interested in um, the secession argument, I would say not so much for its own sake, mm-hmm. but he's interested in figuring out a way to get Davis free. And Davis really wants a trial, right? He he wants to be vindicated and, he, and by, by, uh, by his vindication, ultimately then the Confederacy. Yeah, I mean, that's the way he sees it at the beginning. Um, he writes these sort of, um, I don't know, letters that are full of pathos, you know, where he says stuff like, oh, even if I can't leave my children much, I will leave them my legacy where I defended my country and, you know, stood up for my cause and this kind of thing. Um, he does say all that stuff, but I think at the end of the day, he goes along with his lawyer's strategy. So I will say that his lawyer strategy is um, his lawyer knows that the U.S. government is quite concerned about getting the quote-unquote right outcome in this case, right? So I talked about the dilemma on the part of the prosecution, which is that, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure to try Davis. Um, There's this big worry that he could be acquitted. Um, And so, and, and then there's you know, they don't want to look like they're afraid and that they drop the case because they're afraid, right? They're sort of caught in that dilemma. Um, and um, Charles O'Connor, Davis' lawyer, is quite aware of that dilemma and how high the stakes are for the government. Um, you know, for him, he thinks, well, if I got an adverse ruling on secession, what's the big deal? Because, the, the you know, the war already said that there was an out, you know, an <laughs> adverse ruling on secession. Um, but... For him, Davis's life is still at stake, and so what he does is he harnesses, at least this is what I argue in the book, he harnesses the secession issue quite strategically. So he doesn't know what a court is going to do about secession, what they're going to say about it. He doesn't know what a jury will do, um, but he um, he drops a lot of very broad hints, more than hints. Um, you know, he, he dispatches um, other lawyers on his team to go tell the government um we are going to argue secession um, at, as a defense at trial, and we're going to win. We're totally convinced that we are going to win, even though he's not totally convinced, um, <laughs> because he knows that the government is more worried about that um, than he is. And so he really sort of builds up this picture in the media. He uses the media quite um, strategically, and he's quite savvy about this, um, to build up this image of Davis as a martyr and to build public sympathy for Davis. Um, such that the government really is going to want to drop this case and um, Davis will be free. So this is a long-winded way of answering your question, which is to say that Davis fulminates a lot about he wants to defend the cause and his country, but he ultimately goes along with this strategy, and he knows what the strategy is. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like at a certain point, everyone's trying to drag this out because they – 
either the federal prosecutors are not confident in their ability to win the case uh, or Davis's attorneys are playing on that fear so that he can generate sympathy for his client and ultimately save his neck. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the strategy that, that dragging it out happens on both sides, um, but it's strategic on the part of the defense and mm-hmm. it's not so strategic on the part of the prosecution. So um, if you were to pin me down and say, what's the reason that Davis escaped trial and conviction? Um, I would say ultimately probably that he has a good lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his lawyer is very strategic about this and his lawyer is very interested in, in sort of stretching out the timetable. So he, um, at the beginning of, um, you know, this period right after the war has ended, um, there's such public anger, um, particularly in the North against Davis, right. That, um, you know, he, there, there, there are these sort of very, um, very sad and moving letters that, um, that, uh, that people sent to President Johnson. I'm thinking of one in particular where this lady sends him a picture of her son um, that says, my my son um, died at Andersonville Prison, so if you ever feel disposed to be, you know, to treat Davis um, kindly, please take out this picture and look at it. Oh, sure. Um, and so there's a lot of, um, there's a quite a good deal of anger against Davis um, in 1865. And so O'Connor's, theory is, well, if we can, you know, sort of um, get public anger against Davis in particular to dissipate, right, or at least to get the idea out there of, well, it seems wrong to visit all of the punishment for this war on one person, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And um, to get that sort of um, public sympathy for Davis as a person heightened, right, that that's that's a good strategy for them. Um, I I would say for the government, um, it's less strategic they just don't know what to do right so the reason they stretch out the timetable is because you know o'connor offers them a lot of continuances and agrees to a lot of continuances and they say oh great we don't really want to deal with the problem so okay you don't you know maybe a solution will just present itself and then it never does and um i also discussed in the book that um that chief justice chase is also interested in fleeing this case like this is his worst nightmare um you know, so he's he's quite a political actor and he doesn't want to be, you know, the person who, you know, um, either convicts Davis or lets him off either um, for strategic reasons. And so, um, but I would say that the defense mm-hmm. really orchestrated the, the drawing out of the time table so such that, you know, by the end of this, um, when they get to um, the point at which the government drops the charges against Davis, um, even northern newspapers are saying, like, oh, thank God that is over. That was, like, a big part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so they're saying stuff like, oh, that was a big waste of time. Like, why are we still dragging yeah. it out over nothing? And so, um, you know, that it's a, test to, it's a testament to, um, to the success of O'Connor's strategy that this book really ends with a, with a whimper mm-hmm. rather than a bang. Like, that's what he wanted. Well, it, it strikes me as interesting, too, that there are parallels between what the Confederacy had to achieve during the war and what O'Connor achieves during the run-up to a trial that never happens, is that you know the Confederacy doesn't necessarily have to win the war, they just don't have to lose, whereas it seems like that's the same thing here, is where O'Connor doesn't necessarily have to win, he just doesn't have to lose in trial. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't really um, thought about that parallel before, but... 
but absolutely. And I would say, you know, O'Connor's ultimately way more successful at it mm-hmm. than the Confederacy. So I don't know that. I don't know that he ribs Davis about that, though. My guess is no. Yeah, I mean, he may not. They may not have had that discussion. When he, where was right. he imprisoned in Fort Monroe in Virginia? Yeah, so he's in, he's in prison in Fort Monroe for two years, and then um, he's released on bail um, in early 1867, or maybe it's May of 1867. Um, and then he goes to Canada for a bit, where his family has been. Um, yeah, and O'Connor's in New York. And mm-hmm. they actually... Um, Davis stays at O'Connor's house in New York while he's going up to Canada. Oh, I see. Yeah, for and a few days. And how do they decide where a trial is going to happen? Um, they ultimately decide that they are going to try him in Virginia. It, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I know nothing about criminal law, of course, but is it the case that you have to try a person in the state where the crime is committed? And if, if that is the case, how, how do they decide that the crime is committed in Virginia? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, so I had to learn a lot about um, venue for criminal trials for this book. So, um, so it turns out, you know, Article 3 of the Constitution says that you have to be tried in the place where your crime was committed. This is a federal criminal prosecution, treason being a federal crime. Um, and so they think a lot about, you know, where could Davis be tried? So where was Davis's crime committed? They sort of, the, the prosecution dithers about this question for quite a while. And they, they think about, um, you know, so we were talking about this problem from a potential jury nullification, right? So um, it is not advantageous to the government to try Davis, you know, anywhere in the former Confederacy. Um, but if you think about where was his crime committed, well, Davis committed his crime in Richmond, um, you know, uh, in the Confederate capital at his desk, right? He commits the crime with his pen. Um, so uh, trying Davis in the former um, capital of the Confederacy um, seems quite worrisome. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you going to get a jury to convict um, Davis in the capital, the former, uh, the capital of the former Confederacy. Um, even, I mean, even, even, um, even taking into account the fact that in order to serve on a federal jury, um, you had to take, um, an oath swearing that you'd always been loyal to the union which so in theory, it should filter out all Confederate sympathizers, but who knows? Yeah. So the government is quite worried about Richmond or anywhere in the former Confederacy, they, so they flirt with, um, with different theories that Davis was, um, quote unquote, constructively present anywhere where the federal army, or sorry, the Confederate army marched, right? So if the army was in, um, Pennsylvania, right, which they were, um, you know, they were in Southern Pennsylvania, they were in Maryland, um, you know, there were Confederate raids in Ohio. Um, they think about trying him in other places, but, um, the U.S. Attorney General finally decides that they're going to try him, um, you know, so as to, to seem as though this is totally fair and they're not, you know, attempting to just find a venue where they'll convict him. Um, they eventually do decide to try him in Richmond. And at one point, there is a, a jury that's impaneled. Um, it's called a petite jury. Is that correct? Petty. Oh, petty. It, it looks like petite, but yes. And what it... <laughs> Because I say, because it's not small. There are a lot of people on that jury. 
Um, right. And That's just bad English, you know, mangling of, you know, French words. But yeah. Oh, I see. It was not in italics, so I did not know. Maybe that's why. <laughs> or at least at least where I was reading it earlier. Um, can you can you explain what that is? And then as a follow up question, that jury is multiracial in its nature. And can you talk about the significance of that? Sure. So um, so Davis, uh, there are actually I mean, they get far enough into trial where they get um, they get an indictment against Davis and they, they actually do that twice. So um, so in order to be tried criminally, um, you know, you might remember this from law and order or something like this, right? So first there has to be, um, an indictment before a grand jury, right? So there just has to be enough evidence to, you know, uh, to, to have, um, you know, probable cause that there's actually, um, you know, a crime that's been committed. Um, and so they get a grand jury to indict Davis twice. The first indictment is a huge, big mess. Um, it doesn't even really state the right crimes. Um, you know, I, I will just mention that Davis's prosecution is also foiled by the fact that they have some really bad prosecutors <laughs> initially. Um, but uh, so the first indictment is kind of a mess. They get a second indictment um, in 1867, um, as you mentioned, or actually I think it's 1868. Um, and so what happens is that they get an indictment before a grand jury, and then um, they never assemble, um, you know, a, a petty jury is um, is the, the actual jury that tries you of 12 people. Um, but they have, um, they have a jury pool, right? So they assemble enough people to sit on the jury, but they never actually um, impanel the jury. So what's interesting about both of these juries, right, both the grand juries, um, well, grand juries and then the the petty jury pool that they are picking from is that these are the first um interracial juries um in federal court in american history so Mm -hmm. this problem that i was talking to you about um that that you know this this problem of can they get a jury to convict davis well as i mentioned um you have to take the ironclad oath that said that you had unbroken loyalty to the united states not just that you were now loyal but you had always been loyal and that limits the number of people who can take <laughs> that oath um in richmond right so it basically is you know is um is uh former slaves and um uh free people of color um people who are free before the war um some white unionists, there are a few um, in Richmond, and then also, um, you know, so uh, northerners who come south, you know, um, with the army. So um, those are those are the people that they're supposed to be selecting from, but it's not clear, you know, whether somebody could be on the, um, be on the jury who's a southern sympathizer who says that they were a unionist or something like that. But um, so what happens is that, um, that the, the jury pool, I think, um, I think it's maybe the second grand jury. I think is um, I think it's half half African American um, and half white. So um, so this was I mean this was a big momentous event in American history, and so it does sort of lead both sides to be unsure about what this jury would do, right? Mm-hmm. So O'Connor, um, even though it's Richmond, right? O'Connor has no confidence that this jury is gonna is gonna acquit Davis. He doesn't know, right? Um, you know, I think for him, um, you know, I think he'd be satisfied with basically like a hung jury, right? If there's one person who's not going to vote to convict. Um, so 
So the bar there is pretty low, but he has no idea what the jury's going to do. Um, and the, the, um, the prosecution, um, doesn't either. And a lot of the, um, so I did some work to track down, um, some of the jurors, but, um, so a lot of the, the black jurors who, um, who sit on the grand jury, um, are, you know, quite prominent members of, um, the African-American community in Richmond. So ultimately Davis is not tried. Um, he spends the rest of his life. Uh, defending his actions, even writes his memoirs. Uh, the union goes, the, the reconstructed union uh, goes through a painful process of reconstruction over the next decades and deals with the legacy of the Civil War from then on forward. What are some of the lessons we should take away from the prospect of Davis's prosecution for treason uh, in this period? Yes, that's really interesting. Um, I, I didn't really think that much when I was writing the book about sort of the, the sort of memory of this trial, um, but that, that is one thing I've, um, I've thought about, right? So um, it's interesting. I mean, I think Davis and his family and his lawyer are quite worried about what's going to happen, right? I think everybody's quite worried about what's going to happen in this case. Nobody really knows what the outcome is going to be. Um, and um, what's interesting that, you know, there's not a ton of writing on Davis's case, um, but there had been, I mean, there was some, I would say, that um, came along with the growth of lost cause literature in the late 19th century, so after the immediate aftermath of the war. Um, and that literature, so particularly writing in the um, uh, the Southern Historical Society papers and other sort of bastions of the lost cause, um, those papers suggest you know, later on that, oh, the government was afraid to try Davis because they knew secession was um, was constitutional. And so that's why they were afraid to try him, which is not true. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, everybody, nobody really knows what the outcome is. And so it's interesting, you know, how it sort of gets um, repackaged and reinvented after the fact. But for me, what I think, you know, our lesson is and the way I think about this is that um, I just think that there are so many episodes in American history that we think are totally settled, right? Um, and this one seems totally settled. And it seems like a no-brainer that it would be settled, right? That, of course, the only thing that really mattered was, you know, the outcome of the war. And, of course, immediately after Appomattox, the next day, everybody um, everybody thinks the next day um, that secession is clearly unconstitutional, right? Um, case closed, right? And so what I'm really interested in showing in this book is how that's not true and how mm-hmm. um, our understanding of how people process the outcome of the war and how we got from Appomattox to today is not a straight line and it had to be constructed. Right. And so, um, you know, the book is a big argument for contingency, mm-hmm. right. That, um, and well, not just, you know, contingency, but also the importance of individual actors in this and, you know, accidents and, um, and strategizing, all of that really matters. And I think, you know, it can remind us to take any historical event and really deconstruct it because I think almost anything that you look at, um, our understanding of it today has been flattened, right? Yeah. Um, if you look at it, it's, it's much more volatile at the time. Oh, it's right. It's always, it's never a straight line. It's always a winding road to get wherever you're going at the end of the day. Spoken like a fellow historian. Thank, thank you. 
Well, speaking of mm-hmm. uh, of winding roads and and complicating our our understanding of the past, what are you working on now? Oh, so um, you know, so in my first book, this one, um, I decided to take on the totally uh, the the totally uh, un um, uncontroversial question about secession. Um, and how the Civil War settles the, the question of secession's legality. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my second book, I thought, well, let me just let me tackle something um, that that's sort of of equal weight. So I'm interested in the second book. I'm looking at um, emancipation. So I'm interested in um, the the arguments about the legality of um, emancipation and the question of whether or not um, emancipation is um, going to be legally challenged after the war. Um, how is it that um, emancipation as a legal strategy survives the war? And then um, this has also led me to think about, I really paired in my head, um, emancipation and the end of slavery um, and the question of land redistribution from former slaveholders to former slaves, um, which were two questions that were actually quite intertwined at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, um, again, I want to show that there's contingency um, in the outcome um, of those questions too. Well, I'd imagine just like Jefferson's Davis's trial, this is an awfully complicated, awfully messy process as well. And in terms of, you know, thinking about emancipation and land distribution and who gets what and how you actually incorporate uh, a formerly enslaved people into the body politic in ways that uh, certainly the founders, at least a great deal of them never anticipated. Yeah. Um, so, so again, we're dealing with, um, I would say, sort of big issues. And again, and here, here, I think there's something. I mean, I think that our, um, the way we think about Reconstruction today, I think the way that it, I, I would say that the the scholarly narrative tends to say, well, it's very clear that slavery is going to end and that land redistribution is not going to happen. Um, and then there's a lot of debate over civil rights and how many rights are African-Americans going to get to what extent are they really going to be incorporated into, you know, the body politic. And those, I think people think um, of as questions that are debated and not settled after the war. But I think that, you know, even the the basic question of um, emancipation um, is, uh, is, is volatile after the war um, as well as, um, this question of, you know, I think lander distribution is on the table. Um, and I don't think that it's a no brainer that that evaporates, um, after the war. Um, and again, I will tell you that lawyers are very important in my story. Yeah, I have no doubt. Uh, and you know, those are the people that are making things happen in a lot of ways as well. Well, um, that's what I tell my students. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, they, they want to see themselves in these histories as well. Certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, this this could be empowering for a lawyer. I, Maybe. Exactly. Well, I mean, and that's that's why we do what we do, to inspire people. Sure. <laughs> All right, Cynthia. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for being on the program. And uh, good luck with finishing out the semester online, and uh, uh, stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. This was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. 
If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider making a donation to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.